Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go, Indie Game Business. Welcome back. Today, right now, we are going to have a fireside chat with Tom Buscaglia, the game attorney. Um, I will let Tom start off by introducing himself. Uh, hello, uh, I'm Tom Buscaglia. Oh, sorry. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> or either, I guess. Uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I'm an attorney who is a gamer. And so years ago, I was... Uh, I was playing Quake with my friends online. This is back in the 90s. And I got real curious about how games were made, I guess, just being a curious person and being a gamer. And, uh, you know, I, at the time I was playing probably five hours a day. Anyway, uh, so I went to Atlanta to the E3 show. I'd already actually represented my first developer in 1991, but I wasn't, I wasn't really embedded in the industry and then in about 95 i started going to conferences and stuff and became more and more i i, I sort of like i didn't want anybody to know i was a lawyer you know like the first gdc i didn't even tell anybody i was a lawyer because i was kind of i didn't understand how a lawyer could possibly fit in with all these people who were doing this these wonderful things um and uh the more i got involved with developers the more i realized that uh, my core competencies were something that a lot of studios really needed to have help with. Absolutely. Um, and that's when the game attorney was born and I got the URL, which helps a lot. Uh, and uh, then I, uh, I think the the biggest point in terms of validation was when I got elected to the IGDA board of directors, you know, I'd been running this, I've been running the South Florida chapter for, oh, I don't know. I formed it and basically nurtured it. Um, and then when I got elected to the board, it was sort of like, you know, I felt like the community had accepted me as one of us. And I've been, yeah, one, absolutely. Of, I've been one of us ever since. Uh, so that's it. I, I've represented over to a last count, 200 plus independent development studios, mostly startups. Some people you may have heard of like the Romero's or Marty O'Donnell and a lot of people you've never heard of and a lot of studios that don't exist anymore. Um, you know, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough way to make a living. Um, yeah, it can be. And so and that's remember, yeah, go ahead. I was Heather. just going to say that I remember meeting you at G, uh, GDC a long time ago. And at the time you were the only person I knew that did legal types of things in the game industry. And I was interested in learning about IP work for hire contracts and stuff like that. And so I was like, Oh, I better call Tom and, and find out. So you have always been sort of like, my go-to person when I think about, oh, who who should I ask about this question? Because I, I am not a lawyer and I don't know how to answer it. So. You're making me, am I, can you see me blushing? <laughs> so you've been a, a constant yeah. presence in the game industry for sure. Yeah. And I pretty much will take a call from anybody. I mean, it's, I, I'm, I'm not, the, I'm not so busy or so self-absorbed that I don't think that uh, my time is that much more valuable. I mean, I, I will tell you, when the dudes call me from the couch in the in the garage talking about how they got a great name game for uh, a, an idea for a game that's going to change everything, and I can you can almost smell the reefer through the phone, uh, <laughs> you know, I may not be quite as courteous with them as I am with other people, but generally, yeah, I take the time. To, if if someone has a serious question and they're just getting started out, I'm always happy to answer them. Um, Absolutely. Uh, well, why don't yeah. we find out who is listening to this 
live right now because I know that we're interested and Tom's interested in getting a feel for who's currently watching so that as we go through the chat, he can bring up things that would be relevant to their situation. So if you are an independent developer, please indicate sort of how long have you um, been in business? Are you an indie developer? Are you a publisher? Um, is this your first game? Is this your 10th game? Like, just help us kind of get a feel for the range of folks that are out there. And you can just put your comments in the in the chat of whatever thing you're watching. And Indy will make sure that they pop up for us. He's so good. Yeah. Dan is, Dan is a treasure. <laughs> yes, he is. Uh, That's why I was a bit thrown when we got, when our session started, usually like Dan or Jay does sort of like a little intro, but they left the whole thing up to me. Because I'm kind of, I just joined their Merry Tribe for this conference um, for helping get speakers and, uh, you know, help out with the show where I can with stuff. All right. So we've got someone says we're a small indie team with a new studio. Okay. Good to no, know. Yeah. I suspect that that's probably going to be the majority of the people here. But I don't know. Yep. I don't, I All don't right. think. I mean, I don't think a lot of guys who who were working at Bungie or or, or Valve <laughs> or you know, in Santa Monica at one of the Sony studios can say, "Yeah, look at this." But we've got this guys. Oh yeah, this is Edward Moore. I actually know him. He is not an indie dev, but he's been in the AAA industry for twenty years as a designer. He is somebody that um, does UX design and is always interested in learning what's happening with independent games. So that's nice yes. to know. So he's exactly the person that I was talking about that I didn't think was here, Jay Powell. Oh yeah. Great. So why don't we go ahead and just get, <laughs> jump, jump right into the questions then. Um, uh, this is a great question. What if, <laughs> Oh wait, in a Vixen gamer, indie working on first game based in Norway. Oh, looking to do a Kickstarter and apply for grants soon. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. All right. Nice. So from discord, what if you want all you want to do is make games and you have no interest in the business stuff. How's that going to impact your ability to continue making games? Uh, well, I guess if uh, this is a, a common thing, you know, uh, the, our, our industry is driven by passion, the passion of the developers to, to make cool stuff, uh, which is, you know, that's why I work in the industry because I think it's so cool to make cool stuff. And I've always been, in awe of the fact that uh, game developers can have a concept and then by typing on a computer or making, making drawings, all of a sudden create a whole virtual world that we could actually go and see and, and really appreciate their vision. Uh, so I think that that's, that's kind of what got me here. And I think that's what drives most of the people who, who enter the industry, but the, you know, but it's still a business. If you just want to make a game and you don't, and you're not worried about making any money, <clears throat> if you're not trying to do it as a living, for God's sake, just make your game and put it out there, and maybe somebody will find it. Um, but this is the indie game business, isn't it? Oh That's yeah. Right. So if you're doing a business, then you have to be as serious about your business as you are about your code. You know, you can't just pass it off. You wouldn't put sloppy code in your game and you wouldn't do, you shouldn't do sloppy business. So I think that uh, uh, I, I, I would say build your studio first, you know, focus on your studio and your game. You can do both at the same time, but don't neglect, you know, running a business. You, if, if you really don't want to run a business, if you really have no interest in, in, running a business and you just want to make games, then I urge you to get a job with somebody making their games. And, you know, if you can't help yourself and you have to make your game, then it's either a hobby or a business. And if it's a business, you better take it seriously because everybody you're dealing with is taking it seriously. So um, what are some of the things that a developer who wanted to start taking their business seriously, but has zero experience like some people may not even know the types of things you need to do in order to get set up to start managing your business. So what are some of the things that they should be thinking about? Well, obviously the first thing is you have to create a legal entity. 
Um, that's easy, regardless of where you are in the world. Uh, you can go to the government agency in the United States, it's generally in the States, and set up a, a company. It's good to have a company because it creates a liability shield between you and, and anything that could go wrong. Um, and so if your company goes under, you don't have to go under with it, I guess, which is a pretty smart thing. Um, and, uh, and then you have to secure uh, ownership for all of the assets in the game for your company. And that means you need some sort of work for hire contributor agreement that everybody signs off on. Um, it's very naive to think that the first contract you're going to see as a developer is your publishing deal. <clears throat> you know, and I see yeah. a lot of people say, oh, well, yeah. Oh, no, no, we did. Well, you know, a bunch of us got together and we put together this this title and and we got some music off the Internet and we put that in there and uh, and we're all friends. So we're not worried about it. Heaven forbid a game like that ever succeed because they would be so screwed. I mean, my people, the lawyer guys would make a ton of money on a situation like that. Yeah. But, so uh, if you the, are going to be doing yeah. a game with your friends, though, because that does happen a lot, people meet yeah, at school sure. or whatever, How? Yeah. What, what are some steps that they should be taking then? Because I know sometimes people feel uncomfortable bringing up the idea of, oh, we should sign a contract or we need to kind of figure this out on paper before we move forward. Yeah, How do you if, suggest if, people broach that? Well, if they're feeling uncomfortable about business stuff, then they should get a job working for somebody else who isn't. I mean, you have to deal with this stuff. It's horrible. You know, I, I, I get people say, oh, I really don't like patents because I think they're, they stifle, they, they stifle creativity and, uh, and, and inhibit the growth of the industry as an art form. And I agree with that hundred percent, but uh, they're a fact in the world. It's like, I don't like speed limits. So I'm going to drive as fast as I want. Well, yeah, you can do that, but you're going to have to pay the consequences eventually. So, you know, you, you really have to deal with this stuff. I think, you know, securing the assets for your game, you can't sell what you don't own. If your studio doesn't own the assets in the game, you really can't sell it. So how and, do you do and, that? What are be sort of the first set of contracts a developer would want to get? How do yeah, they secure their assets? Um, and well, there's, um, you should have, uh, I recommend uh, two NDAs, non-disclosure agreements. That's something that you use with somebody when you talk to them about your secret sauce, which you should have. Um, and uh, and you should have a really a basic understanding of the four different types of intellectual property, because that's basically what you're creating is intellectual property. And they're covered by patents, which are expensive, uh, really great and hard to get and uh probably not something you want to do at the beginning, unless you have a really unique architecture or something. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's 25 to 50 grand to get one. And, and then you, it's a long story. Uh, trademarks, which are basically your brand, the name of your studio, the name of your game, you, you might want to secure those. That's sort of optional. Once you start using it, you have a common law right to use it if no one else is using it. But if you want to be able to enforce it against anybody else, it needs to be registered. Ditto with copyrights. Copyrights attached to any created work, the moments of the moment of its creation, but can't be enforced unless you uh, and unless you uh, register it with the Library of Congress. So copyright is basically the content. Trademark is the name of the content, right? Um, patents are the processes and architecture, and then the last one is trade secrets, which which are exactly what they sound like. They're secret. So if you tell anybody your trade secret, it's not a secret. Okay. Right. The other th the other thing you need now is some sort of work for hire or contributor agreement. <clears throat> the ones I do always have included in them an acknowledgement of trade secret, so that you know it, it, it's it's real easy uh, in the, in some casual atmospheres to talk about your secret sauce, whatever it is, whether it's a unique. What, what I think most publishers would refer to as a, a USP, a unique selling point. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's something in your game that no other game has. Um, and your game can be 98% Call of Duty, but if it has a USP that Call of Duty doesn't have, that's what you're going to focus on when you're pitching. Right. Anyway, um, and those are covered by trade secrets. And trade secrets are kind of funny because if you let the cat out of the bag, uh, it's not a secret anymore and whatever value it may have had to your company, it doesn't have anymore. So, uh, and having your employees sign off on this, certainly it protects you against a rogue employee, 
But also, if anybody else were to uh, steal your trade secret and you needed to prove it up, um, you would have the fact that you had all of your employees sign a confidentiality agreement with as part of the hiring process or the engagement process. And you do that with them, whether they're employees, uh, contractors, or even uh, uh, voluntary contributors. Right. Because I think one of the things you're trying to protect is any work that they complete on behalf of your game falls under the work for hire, which means that the company owns the work, not the person who created it. Is that correct? That's basically the whole point of it. Yeah. Yeah. So that basically you're transferring. Now, in reality, full-time employees, if they're paid on a salary, Mm-hmm. the the company actually owns their work as work for hire that's that's how it got its name but also if you assign your ownership of of a of, of an intellectual property to the company then it be, it's 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 declared it's considered or treated as work for hire mm-hmm. so the origin may be a little different technically but i don't want to get too technical because yeah. And I have two really great questions to kind of call back. Number one, yeah. for the patents, copyrights, and trademarks, the IP stuff, um, does that carry over to other countries? Like for teams that are going international or that are not based in the States, what what types of things would they need to be thinking about? Well, in general, uh, trademarks are enforceable through through um, uh, through international treaties, the Paris Convention has a list of all the countries that will honor each other's trademarks. There are some situations that are different, though. For example, in some EU countries, uh, in the U.S., the first use of the trademark uh, decides who gets priority for it. And trademarks, uh, th- this we could end up, I could do an hour on just intellectual property if you want, but uh, <laughs> trying to trying to stay superficial enough. Uh, every lawyer I've ever met, by the way. Who's, who's decided that they wanted to play in the game industry, the first thing they do is they publish an article about the different types of intellectual property. I'm sure there's a bunch of it out there. Uh, but uh, basically, the Paris Convention covers that. Copyrights are a little more difficult uh, in terms of enforcement. But keep in mind, you you can't protect the idea. You can only protect the execution of the idea. So unless somebody's stealing your code or stealing your artwork, um, there's not a lot you can do to protect it anyway. That's why so what you're really trying to protect are your game assets in the way that you've expressed this idea. Exactly. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And that, that is protectable. And is it enforceable over there? I don't know, to be honest. In some countries you could probably try. Um, most of the EU it's, it's enforceable, but uh, there's a hodgepodge of laws and, and I, I will be honest. I'm very familiar with U.S. law. Not so EU law, kind of. The mm-hmm. rest of it scares the hell out of me. So for teams, though, that were not based <laughs> in the states, they're certainly probably within their state um, governments that they would want to start making queries to to see are there ways that they can protect their IP there. Um, Absolutely. I, I was as I was saying. I don't know if I got to it, but uh, in European countries, it's not the first to use the the mark that has priority. It's the first to register it. So oh, you, okay. can, you could be using your mark for five years and somebody else registers it and then they would claim priority in the EU and they wouldn't have priority here and it creates a, a, mess. a mess. That's how lawyers make money. That's uh, true. <laughs> yeah. So here's another great question. Um, earlier when we were talking about work for hires, um, could you explain the difference between someone who's an employee, someone who's a contractor, and someone who's a contributor? Because I know here in the States, there's a big deal between is this an employee or a contractor when it comes to the IRS and the money that you pay <laughs> pay in right. taxes. Right. Um, okay. And I'm, I'm going to limit this to U.S. law because I have no idea what things are like in Finland. Uh, but an employee is somebody who you set their hours you tell them what to do. They do it. You pay them and you deduct withholding tax and social security from their paycheck. Contractor, you sign an agreement with them. You, um, I mean, they all have agreements. Um, and, uh, they provide you with, with, uh, the result of their work, but you don't manage how they do it. Okay, so they're independent. It's called an independent contractor, basically. And the contracting uh, uh, documents would convey the intellectual property to to the company. An employee company automatically owns it. A contributor is anybody who contributes. 
Um, I, I, I have, uh, I've been using a, a contributor, what I call a contributor agreement. It basically covers employees or contractors. Oh, I see. Because as far as the company's concerned, you, well, there's nothing wrong with having your employee agree to assign all of their ownership rights and their assets to the company because they do anyway, but it's okay to say that. Right. And then, then I, there's other stuff that goes in there. Um, but yeah, that's that's basically what are the first contract startup developers for need? I'm way ahead. So why is Jay feed? Jay doesn't Jay knows the answers to all these. Why is he asking? These these are, <laughs> now these are so that the folks in chat can see what the questions are. All right, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, He's helping out here. All right. I I, I thought he was be, would be busy. He's always doing something. Oh, so <laughs> then I'll just say hi, Jay. I hi, Jay. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I would suggest the first one is you know, articles of incorporation. You know, form a company. Uh, I don't even do that for people. I make them go to LegalZoom or MyCorporation.com. There's so oh, many. Yeah, places. can you talk about that a little bit? Those are some it's low just, cost ways. Yeah, or do you recommend them? Yeah, yeah. Well, because the basic. I mean, look at if you have a complex set of individuals. Who are investing not just their time but capital into the game, and you have a complex set of conditions, then I would suggest you probably want to have a, a legal professional help you put it together. Other than that, nah, it's not important. I mean, it's just you need to have a valid legal entity. You need to follow the simple, you know, simple formalities of, you know, having a quasi-corporate meeting period every year and and making sure that when you open the bank account, the right papers are filed. All this is very basic, simple stuff. Right. I know more about this from running a small business than I do as a lawyer, to be honest. Um, so, <coughs> excuse me. So, I, But I do think that if forming a company, unless, I mean, there are some circumstances where you can do the same thing as a DBA, an individual doing business as right. a company name. Uh, and if it, so if it's like one person or two people, you can pull that off. I think eventually, though, you know, the best thing to do is set up a small company, whether it's a, a make sure it's registered as an S corp. So the tax situation is S corps are an yeah. IRS classification in the states that allow the profits and losses to pass through to the owners. So that's a good thing to have. And it doesn't. And the, and the corporation or or LLC will not pay taxes itself. Um, C corps are the big kids. That's when you grow up and you start looking for VC funding. They're going to want you to be a C corp because a C corp can issue millions and millions of shares. It's, oh, okay. very, it's a whole. I mean, it's it's just like all everything in the in the stock exchange. Those are all C corps. Right? I see. Yeah, because I know that when I was establishing my business, it was a whole big question: like, is it an S corp? Is it an LLC? A C corp? And it's hard to, I think, for someone who's not familiar, this is a long time ago, what's the best choice? Now, I ended up picking an S-Corp because of the tax reason that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. But um, I know a lot of people like to use LLCs as well because I think those are fairly more straightforward to set up than a corp than an S-Corp, for example, yeah. which had I, a little bit more paperwork and a little bit more cost. Well, I think I think you got it backwards, but that's okay. I mean, I, <laughs> in my opinion, no, because you can set up a, a – a, okay, let me clarify one point first. Absolutely. Um, S versus C is S corp versus C corp. Mm -hmm. That is a that is an IRS classification. They're both they both in terms of the documents have exactly the same thing. They have a, articles of incorporation and they have their bylaws. Okay. Now they will also have additional things like shareholder restrictive agreements and things like that. But that's basically so S corp is a corporation or an LLC or a partnership. Oh, I where see. The, okay. Where the where the profits and losses pass through to the members and the and the legal entity itself does not pay taxes. C corps they pay taxes. They issue dividends. Uh, it's a more formal procedure and it's also more regulated. Um, so that that's the difference there. Now now let's talk about corporate form as opposed to tax consequences. That is an LLC or or, an, or or a corporation, a small small business corporation, an S corp. Um, with an LLC, you can have corporate members, right? You can have foreign members. With an S corp, not so much. So okay. there's a dis 
there's flexibility with the, with the LLC that you don't get with the corporation. Um, I had somebody, I was talking to somebody the other day and they get, it's, it's one guy, right? Mm-hmm. He may need, he may need some music for his game, but that's it. And I said, look at, you know, if it was me, I'd register as a, as an S corp. And then if you need to convert to a C corp or even change, change it to an LLC later, you can, but if, since he wasn't going to have any partners and, and the documentation and annual cost of a, of a small corporation or I don't know that they're any different, to be honest, but mm-hmm. I, they seem simpler to me. And it's, it could just be because when I was coming out, everybody was doing corporations and nobody was doing LLCs. Yeah. But All I, right. Know, well, yeah. let's move on because I think we've kind of, yeah, I don't know. If, it's a quagmire. I, it's, it's a quagmire. And we have international folks that are like, it's quite different here. Yeah, um, we don't care. <laughs> let's yeah, talk thank about. Thank you, Creator Crops. Um, working with publishers. So. What about working with publishers or investors? What are some of the things that developers need to be mindful of from a legal standpoint or a business standpoint? Well, first thing I'd say is it doesn't matter whether you like them or not, or they like you or not. It's nice to work with people you like, but don't let that influence how you handle your relationship with them. I have seen some of the nicest people I've met in the industry work for companies that were just MFs. I'm trying to watch my language here, but I probably not going to succeed at it. You know me. Uh, No, but I mean, you know, they're just sleazy guys who, who are taking advantage of inexperienced developers and, and, but they're really nice. Don't get me wrong. You know, you meet at a conference or something, or they come and show it. Yeah. The the biggest problem is when somebody shows interest in your game for the first time and you've been, you've been in a hole, right? You've been in, you've been gophering, you're down under in the hole working on your game and you pop your head up and somebody from a publisher for God's sakes, sees your game and says, hey, I really like your game. We're interested in taking it on. And the developer then melts into a puddle of goo and signs the first piece of paper that's put in front of them. And trust me, I've unscrewed several people out of that situation. I was going to say, I mean, you do read quite frequently stories about how publishers were not acting in the best interest or didn't do milestone payments or didn't do the things they say they were going to do. How can a developer protect themselves in these instances if they've already signed the publishing deal? And, you know, is it too late for someone like you to come in and help them get out of it? Like, what does that look like? Well, I, I do that. It's, 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 it's really not the most cost effective way to deal with that situation. The most cost effective way to deal with it is as you're talking to a publisher, you should be talking to several. Um, first of all, look at their catalog, see who they published, and reach out to those other developers and say, what do you think? And there's, they're confident. They can't talk about any details. And they might not be able to say anything, or they might say, I'm sorry, we can't say anything. But you bet if they say these people th- that if the people are great to work with, they're probably going to say that. Yeah. If they say, I really wish I could, but I'm, I'm prohibited from saying my lawyers told me I can't talk about this. You know, <laughs> I would kind of steer. <laughs> Not clear. a good sign. Yeah. yeah. And nobody's coming. Nobody's coming out of out of the woodwork and it's never, never published a game. Or maybe they have that. That'd be enough to worry about. Uh, I would, you know, vet the hell out of them, just like you would with anybody. You know, it's like if you were buying a car, you wouldn't just go in and buy the first car that you saw. Right. You know, you'd, you'd, you'd research it, you'd, you know, do your due diligence for God's sake. Um, and I think that's, that's really important because most of the people who are out there screwing people are out there screwing people. And they're operating on the theory that there's an infinite number of suckers out there and we'll just burn them down one at a time. And so they don't have follow on projects, you know? Yeah. I, I, and I, I mean, I, for the longest time I intend, I was going to, you know, I, somebody, I was talking to Jay Min years ago and he, I, I asked him, uh, he asked me what I do and I kind of described the scope of my practice. And he said, Oh, you're a consigliere. <laughs> yeah. You know, being Sicilian, being called a consigliere sort of was kind of cute. And I said, and I've always wanted to put up a, put up a webpage called the horse's head. If you'll think back to the, the movie, yeah. uh, the Godfather, where I would list all the people that I, that are dead to me. I have a dead, I have a, I have a shit list which people can get on, but they can get off. Oh, that's um, nice. And then I have a dead to me list, and those people just and don't exist. Two. They don't <laughs> exist in my world anymore. So you know, everybody has this one way or the other. Ask people, especially people. You know, the problem with most developers is they deal with, 
you know, they, they get one contract. If they're really good, they get one contract every three to five years, maybe yeah. for the publisher. Publishers are writing 20 a year. Indie Game Business has one of the longest-running digital event series in the gaming industry with hundreds of publishers, investors, developers, and tech companies to meet with. All the sessions are always free to watch forever, and you can get a free pass to receive all the slide decks from all their speakers. The tickets for meetings start just at $50. Go to IndieGame.Business and use the code IGBPODCAST to get 20% off your ticket. So what sorts I'm, of things should be should developers be looking for? Let's say that they were good about vetting the publishers they were working with. They were talking to a couple different ones. Now they're at sort of, hey, let's get some deal points down. What are the types of things developers should be looking for in their publishing contracts? Well, uh, I mean, this is what I do for a living, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, seriously. Um, there's there's about a hundred things. Uh, obviously, for I, I, let me tell you, how about if I list a couple of tricks that publishers play? Oh, that that's a, okay, great. Publishers, because it's a little easier. Because I mean, there's tons of things. You know, there there has to be audit provisions so that you get to look at their books periodically. Um, I I usually push for escalating royalties. So if the game happens, if you happen to have that hit runaway game, your your royalty percentage gets bigger as their revenue gets bigger because they've already made all their money and, and, you know, publishers want to make every cent. And uh, if you go in with, I just want to make a great game, they'll say fine, but then you don't get to bitch if you make a great game and they get all the money because you said right. you wanted to make a great game, you know? So it's, that's, that's terrible. Uh, let's see. Um, so yeah, what are well, some of the yeah. tips and tricks? Cause Jay wrote here, there's a difference between identifying the trap and hiring Tom to fix it. So maybe give us some no, ways. You don't to want to, you know, you you want to hire me. Before, you want to hire me, or there's there's a, you know, when I started, there was only me and two other guys. Yeah. Uh, but that was over thirty years ago. There's there's a there's a group of very competent young attorneys who are working in the industry right now, and uh, use me, use somebody else, but just have somebody look at it for you. Hopefully they've done. You know, ask them how many publisher contracts have you done, and if it's yeah, if it's less than twenty, move on. Um, you know, I'm at 200, so I, I'm, I'm all, I'm good. So you've seen everything. Uh, so what are some of the, I'm really curious I'm about still, these. I know I keep talking. And I need to it. know. <laughs> all right. Okay. Let's see. Um, IP ownership, right? Who owns the, who owns the content? Um, they will say, this is my favorite. You get to own, you get to own the, you own your own IP. All we want is a, an exclusive perpetual, uh, exclusivity to, to it, right? Which basically you get your ownership and they basically strip you of all the rights of ownership by having you contract them away. That is not a good thing. Um, I always, I'm always rankled by uh, non-unilateral provisions. You know, uh, uh, you indemnify us, but we don't indemnify you. Indemnification means if something screws up, something we did screws up and you get sued for what we did, we have to defend you, right? Well, yeah. publishers screw up too. So, you know, and there's no reason not to have those things mutual. Um, as I mentioned briefly, audit provisions, which is where um, they're, they're, they're paying you periodically uh, based on their getting the money, taking some of the money for themselves, taking some of the money for other shit, which is the, the real great stuff, and then giving you some, some whatever's left. Um, and you have the right to make sure that they're doing that correctly. Uh, I was on a panel years ago. Jesus. Yeah, it was a long time ago, over 10 years ago. It was with, uh, 
geez, was it a Microsoft thing? And uh, somebody, who was it? One of the guys from Epic was there. And this was before they had warehouses full of money. They were just a, a successful studio at the time. And uh, they said that they had, and, and the, the issue of auditing came up. And, the, and, the, and the, the general consensus among developers seems to be, oh, I don't want to be, I don't want to be seen as a troublemaker. Mm. Now look at enforcing a contract right doesn't make you a troublemaker. It makes you a business person. So don't yeah. fall for it. Okay. So, and and uh, uh, I think I think it was I think it was Mark Rain uh, from Epic at the time, and he piped up and he said, "You know, we audited our first game, and we'd spent extra time and effort uh, negotiating." Uh, the most beneficial definition of what net proceeds meant, right? Or net revenue, which is where the, that's where the rev split occurs, right? Yep. And uh, publishers will try to deduct anything they can from this. I mean, I've heard people talk about alimony payments, but oh my that, gosh. Was, that wasn't joking, but no, I mean, for example, their marketing costs on what? Exclusively on your game, their marketing costs for everything. Um, you know, I've seen spreadsheets from publishers where their internal administrative costs were more than the budget for the game. So you got to watch out for that. And uh, and apparently they'd done a really good job of it. And he said when they did their first, they did an audit uh, and they found like a quarter million dollars that they hadn't been paid. Wow. You and know, they got I'm, that yeah. because they audited it. Yeah, because they, they exercised the contractual right. So don't worry about, um, you know, and, yeah. and, or... Oh, I don't want to do that because the next time I try to deal with them, they're going to, you know, they're not going to want to deal with me. And that's just complete crap. Yeah, absolutely. These publishers don't keep, they, they don't keep track of that. It's Besides, almost like they're banking on you not being business savvy. And so they take advantage of that. And if you show that you are, that's in your favor and hopefully shows to them that you are a good long-term investment. If, if you want to continue working with them, I mean, right. if you're in a situation where they're doing stuff like that, they may not be a partner for you for your next project. You know, you will well, have other options. That's the other thing to look out for in these contracts is, uh, is the follow on, you know, we want the right to your next three games. Mm. Or we want the right to any sequels or spinoffs. And, and to me, the argument against that is always, let's see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. If, you, if me... you're good, if you're good to work with, we're going to want to give you the next game. Yeah. So, I have, you know, um, a question here, I'll get, so Joker of Aces asked a question about, is the process different for registering an LLC that sells services that does contracting or asset creation than it is for like a game developer that's actually pitching and creating a game? No. Yeah. I f yeah. So Joker, I think it's the same process. Company's a company. Yeah. Com now trademarks would be different, but that's a whole, you didn't ask about the trademarks. So we're yeah. And like you said, you could talk for at least an hour on all that. What kind of percentage um, of profit and recoup? Yeah, this is a great one. I'm sure everyone's yeah. eager to hear what this the answer is for this one. Uh, what's the budget for the game? Let's say the budget, just as an example, let's say it's a game that is between one and three million dollars. Okay. And you would be looking, first of all, percentage of profits. It's usually a percentage of net revenue, which is not exactly profits. Uh, what happens is gross revenue comes in. That's everything that comes in the door. That is, let's let's call it a Steam game because that's easy. So we know it's the, the Steam's taking their percentage, and you get then the, and the publisher gets what's left, and then they deduct from that certain items that you have agreed to, right? Whatever that is, and that's where the devil is in the details. There, you want to make sure that. Uh, it, it, I mean, for example, I, I, let me answer the question. Then I'll, we'll, we'll probably going to play in this particular sandbox for a while. Yeah. Um, uh, now if the game is fully funded, I, I always, my rule of thumb is, uh, and uh, again, this is just based on as much my gut and my experience as anything else. Um, I think the money's worth about 24%, you know? <laughs> so for example, if they're fully funding your project and then the distribution rights are probably another 30 to 35 percent. Mm -hmm. So if you can get a, a even a 40 percent rev share um, off of net profits, uh, it's probably OK. So um, then the example or, like or the net's kind of pushing it and there and, and, the, and the recoup, uh, they will 
a lot of publishers will try to recoup off of the developer's share of the proceeds. So they say they advanced you a million dollars, then they're going to take that million dollars out of your share, not off the top. Right. So watch okay. out for that. Watch out for that because now you're, you're, you know, the, the, they will make three X or four X their investment before you recoup. Right. Probably a little unreasonable. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that, that's why, for example, uh, pushing for escalating royalties is not a bad thing because even if you were at that 30 or 40% at the beginning, once they've made four or five times their investment, maybe you should go to 25% or 30% or 40%. Keep in mind, when I, when I started this, developers were lucky to get 14%. Yeah, it was like when you say 30, 40, I'm like, wow, that seems high. Because, you know, back in the day, yeah, you didn't make a ton no, of these percentages. Oh, so and, for that, example, that was, and that was net off of retail. Which yeah. was our, which was half of the price. Now we're you know we're starting at seventy percent of wholesale, right? So that's the question. Great. So let's say we the game made a million dollars on Steam. Steam gets their thirty percent. That means there's seven hundred thousand left in the pie. Then the publisher is going to deduct whatever was agreed on from that. And then let's say they took two hundred thousand dollars out. So now we have five hundred thousand dollars left. That's where you get start getting your percentages as the developer off of that five hundred thousand. And what you're saying is making sure that they, they're they not trying to have you pay back all the money they lent you before they actually start giving you royalties and monies off of that. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, it's also not uncommon or not unheard of. I wouldn't say it's not uncommon because it's kind of uncommon, but it's not unheard of to have uh, publishers be willing to, you know, peel off or reduce a royalty rate to the developer uh, during the recoup period. Mm -hmm. so you're getting 20% until we've recouped two or three X our, our initial funding. And then, and then it goes to 40% or something uh, because they do that because they don't want to see the studio go under, you know, it's, it's a yeah. horrible thing to complete a game and deliver it to a publisher and have it get released because you don't have anything now and you're probably not going to get any money for 90 days. Right. Cause your milestone payments have stopped. Yeah. The game is now out there. And then you might start getting revenues from that game, like you said, in 90 days. And you might have be living paycheck to paycheck with your studio with a, a burn yeah. rate. And no, I, you might have to I, pause everybody. I, I, it's worthwhile if you're funding. Uh, one of my clients did this years ago, and I, I still hand it out to people if, 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 I, if I found it, if I could find it anyway. But it was a spreadsheet we did. And uh, we were working with a deal with Microsoft. And they had this whole thing where they like to hold back you know, like 20% for the last payment, which occurs, it, it occurs 30 days after you deliver or after they accept the gold master, the final version, right? And so we charted this whole thing out and uh, with fairly realistic, not big, we didn't blow up the numbers or anything, but it clearly showed that in month six and seven, we would have to close the studio. Oh, wow. On a 14 month development site. Because because all this money that we needed to make the game was we weren't getting it until after the game was made. It was tied up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they say, well, that doesn't make any sense to us. If if we'd been if we'd lied more, if we'd lied better going in, uh and, about how and much money you would need. Need, yeah. If we would have yeah. lied about how much we needed, then we wouldn't need it. But that was and it was it was terrible. The game got canceled anyways. So yeah. So Jay but writes here that, that taking, but taking that, getting you know, getting your nuts and bolts with it with with a spreadsheet, and uh, when you lay out what you need, first of all, pad, not saying why, but you should. I recommend people factor in twenty to thirty percent profit in the de in the de development budget. Um, yeah. If if a if a publisher asks you to see your costs, move on. Oh, so they shouldn't see the very detailed cost breakdown. Not your no, you have two spreadsheets. One is for the publisher and one is for the studio. Yeah. Right? And I think sometimes people put a contingency, right? If they make a budget and then they're like, we're adding a 20% contingency. Is that to cover the things that you're talking about? Or is contingency just good practice to be doing? I've also seen some people um, put inflation account for inflation in their budgets. So for every 12 months, they add sort of five to 7% inflation 
on their numbers as well. At, you know, because that's no, something to be concerned with. Because they're being good business people. Yeah. Um, Jay writes, day one royalties have been pretty common in deals for the last four to five years. Could you talk about that a little bit? Like, what does that mean? Well, that's what I was talking about, where they, they agree to give uh, royalties from the beginning of, from the right. commencement of the revenue flow. It's, it, uh, in my experience, it's usually at a, release, a, a reduced rate, but I don't know. He, Jay does more of these than I do, so maybe <laughs> Uh, um, all right. Another question. What key points should we pay attention to when onboarding a business partner or investor? So I guess this is slightly different from a publisher, maybe somebody who's like, hey, I want to help fund the game, but you still have to go find a publisher. Yeah. Yeah. Well, business partner. I'm not sure exactly. If, if you're talking about um, a partner in the studio, other than an investor, then that's one thing. Uh, if it's an investor, it's different. Um, oh, maybe like a co-founder situation. A where... Co-founder situation. I I've seen them go bad too many times. So, yeah. Um, what you really need is somebody who's a complete self. There's a difference between an owner and a uh, and a an employee. And owners go out and they look at, at the entire global a mess of things that need to get done, and then they do them. And nobody has to direct an owner. An owner should never have to be, he should have his area of, of responsibility, but nobody should be having to tell him what to do. Right. <laughs> because he knows what to do because it's his company. Exactly. So if you've got an owner who's, who's not producing, it's not an owner. He's a, he's a, he's, he's either a good employee or a bad employee, but he's not a good partner. As far as investors, man, uh, you vet them, uh, as hard as you vet, uh, 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 publishers maybe even harder mm. because they're, they're going to have a say in how you run your company. Uh, the vast majority of my clients, I, I can't, I don't even think I have a handful of people or less that have been involved with, you know, traditional VC funding. Most of my clients are all bootstrapped. Yeah. Uh, many by, you know, the guys at Spry Fox are bootstrapped. They're both MBAs, you know, yep. but they're bootstrapped because they didn't want to have any strings on what they were doing. That's and true. And that's one of the advantages, right? Yeah. Is that you, they can do wanna, what they want. If you want to run your own shop, then that's the way to go. If you just, if it's a business, if it's a pump, you know, if you're just trying to build something up enough to sell it or something, then I guess you should be doing NFTs right now, <laughs> at least for the next six months. But I don't know what it's going to be next, but that, yeah. that, that thing's probably going to be drying up soon anyway. Uh, anyway. Yeah. I think it, it, it with one, it's uh, with a business partner. To me, it's it's as much a cultural and personality matched sort of thing. Um, with investors, it's it's uh, it's not personality doesn't have anything to do with it. It's it's the terms of the deal, you know, and yeah. how difficult they're making it for you. Um, so you had alluded though that you've seen co-founder situations not end well. Can you talk a bit about like what are the pros and cons of setting up? Um, a studio entity with co-founders like what are I mean in some cases it can work um, I think the Bioware guys would be considered what co-founders and yeah. of course that did well, well guys the guys that, that are a sponsor Tripwire you know I yeah, you know, Tripwire. I, I was their attorney when I helped them put the company together back in the day I mean I was, oh. I, was their, I was their lawyer for the first I think five or six years so it comes full circle now <laughs> yeah yeah but uh well there you know uh but that was unique. But yeah, they had they had four original partners. One uh, couldn't handle living in the states, and he went away. So they had uh, the three core, and then they brought in a couple of people. But there was three or four guys at the beginning. Uh, fifth cell, three guys. Um, most of the successful studios, I can't think of except for Dylan Fritter uh, at Audio Surf, but he's just he's a one man studio, so I didn't you know. But aside from that, normally it takes a couple people, and mm -hmm. it, it, what what I and this is based on just an anecdotal on my observation of the studios that I know of. But there's usually I mean, usually one person is the face of the studio, but usually there's two or three people that are very equal in terms of expertise and very diverse in terms of expertise. If you know what I mean, they're really good yeah. at what they do, and they do different things. If you uh, do have a co-founder, though, what are some of the things I guess you would put in the contract? about that like i've heard of things like what if a co-founder wants to leave or what if a co-founder if you have fundamental disagreements on the direction the company's going how do you plan 
for dealing with those things before they become actual issues? Could you yeah. write things in the contract about this? That would go into normally uh, in the corporate documents, there would be a, a buy sell agreement where, you know, for example, I can buy you out. I offer you to buy you out. I offer you a price for your stock and you have to sell me your stock at that price. Mm. So either I can buy you out or you can buy me out, but you set the price. So you can't set it too low or right. I'm going to buy you out. I see uh, what you're saying. Yeah. So that's, you know, uh, it says, haven't read it. Oh, the uh, raw fury publishing contract. Right. Don't Do you know. know. I, should I read it? I could read it and tell you, but it's uh, well, it's a contract. They're an independent publisher and they made their contract publicly available because they were, um, wanted to be transparent about all the ins and outs of it. I, I myself haven't read it in detail, but yeah. I know that a lot of indie people have been studying it because it contains a lot of useful information on how these deals might work. Yeah. I already know that stuff though. So why would I read it? <laughs> I only read stuff I have to read, Heather. For all right. Sake. How do you uh, go about determining the value of your company before you release a game? <laughs> So I guess this is in the instance where someone's making a game and they want to try to sell the company before the game's released. Is that Boy. a feasible option? Uh, no. I mean, <laughs> if you may be looking. I'm not saying that you can't value your company and you can't value the value of an unreleased game that has no audience or sales. Right. But it's sort of it's not like Facebook where they ran at a loss for 10 years, but they had millions and millions of people looking at it. Right. So they had the potential for revenue there. Um, it, it's going to be hard. I mean, it, it, you're going to have to, uh, you know, keep a straight face and, and swing for the fence. I mean, seriously. I mean, I, I, I've got, I had a client with a studio that's kind of failing and it's valued at about $41 million, uh, mostly because somebody offered to help them out to a certain extent mm. and they use that as a valuation. But until you have, that first investment or funding deal done, um, even if it's friends and family, it's going to be really hard to set a value. Once you have that valuation, then you've, at least you got a basis for it. But usually you'll need a, a rational basis for determining the value of your company. And what you think of as it's going to succeed, just please don't say Among Us or, or Minecraft or any of those words because you're just going to hurt yourself. <laughs> yeah, those are, I guess were anomalies, right? You know. Yeah, yeah, that's not the example you look to when you when you when you when you're evaluating whether to take take a business opportunity or to do something. You yeah. don't look at you don't look at the most successful anything and then say, "Oh, we're going to do that." I mean, you know, uh, geez, Minecraft is just insane. Uh, yeah. Oh, I made electronic Legos. Okay, <laughs> and then uh, and Among Us that game was out for a year and a half until a bunch of COVID board streamers needed something to do. And they said, oh, look, a bunch of us can do this together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they started streaming their games on it. And all of a sudden, even though none of them had more than a couple hundred thousand followers, in the that visibility, yeah. and the thing just blew up. I'm not saying it's yeah. not a good game. It's a, it's a great little game. But there are, there are a thousand great little games like that. Yeah, it's the visibility piece of it that gets so tough once you actually are getting ready to release. And there, but there are other things though that might bring a company value. So when you talked about that example of the company, forty-one million dollars, do they have other sorts of IP or licenses or properties? Because I think like Atari is a great example of a company that's had its ups and downs, but because they had certain licenses, you know, oh, I'm going to get this license from Atari and re revive whatever old school game they did like a pitfall maybe or something like that i mean that was an activision one where they revitalized that brand but those things technically could have value assigned to them right that might help bring value to the company if it hasn't released a game for a while yeah well yeah but atari's not atari well not not now <laughs> we know that atari is not atari they bought the name out of bankruptcy and now it's, right. it's a yeah. company and they have the brand so there's there's that too um yeah, I, I still think the valuation thing is, you know, I mean, I can think of things. For example, um, I've got a studio right now that has, you know, the guys, the guys who own it, are all marquee developers. They've all, mm -hmm. they've all 
written and been an instrumental in delivering multi-million, hundred million dollar games, right? Yep. So there's a certain cachet there that probably gives a valuation to their company based on that. Based on their backgrounds and what yeah, they've done. Based on yeah. who they are and what they are. And, and you know, so there's I mean, that's that. how these guys get 50, 60 million dollars in VC uh, funding, yeah. right? If you have the right biography and the right list of titles you've shipped, you become way more attractive to investors. That's you know. that, exactly. Oh, Is that the probably. best way to evaluate future success? That's no, to be determined, not. I suppose. No, um, but it's it, it does reduce the risk for the investor. And keep in mind, they're they they aren't afraid to lose money, but they want to have an opportunity to make a twenty x hit. Yeah, absolutely. So if it succeeds, they want it to really succeed. If it loses, it's okay. They they can afford to lose the money, or they wouldn't be investors. Yeah. All right, we got another great question here, asking for a friend from Jay Powell. <laughs> How do you go about starting a joint venture with a company on the other side of the ocean? Where do you start? So it sounds like he wants to get some sort of, or this friend wants to start some sort of international, international thing. So a group in a person in the States doing a joint venture with somebody in another country. Say Russia. No, let's not say Russia. Let's say Europe. Yeah. Um, well, keep in mind that any any of those sorts of agreements, you can agree to have the jurisdiction what, who, who, whose law applies. Um, and assuming that you're in a sufficient uh, position uh, in terms of leverage in the negotiation, then you would just want to have U.S. law apply and have U.S. law deal with it. Um, if you're if you're going with, say, it's a Chinese company, maybe you want. Hong Kong law to apply because it's a little more Eastern uh, or Western. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's a tough one. Jay, thanks, man. That's what I needed. Uh, I mean, if I call you and ask you, you're going to charge me money. So I would I would not charge you to answer this question because I don't really have a good answer for it. I mean, the thing is, what you need is you need a lawyer here and you need a lawyer there, you know? And then mm -hmm. they have they have to work out the details of how you want to do it. A lot of it depends on who the parties are and what do you got going? Is this something you want to tell everybody about? No. <laughs> <laughs> this was for a friend he was asking yeah. for. Yeah, yeah, for me, sure. Tom is for a friend. Yeah, a friend. Oh, it's funny. All right. So we've yeah. got Tom for either you to drop some additional nuggets of knowledge or one more question. What what did we not cover today that you get asked? A lot. Oh, geez. Where did you get that shirt? No, <laughs> I, I don't know, man. I, I mean, it's, it's, I get so many different weird questions. Uh, Do you ever get questions about, hey, someone stole my game idea? Oh, my God. Yeah, let's talk about that for a little bit. The folks sure. that are like, I've actually, we've actually successfully on with when, uh, when Six Waves stole Spry Fox's game, we went after him. And uh, although oh, I can't yeah. say we won, they did give us the IP in settlement. So I think that means we won. Yeah. I guess uh, I'm talking more of somebody who maybe hasn't even released said game, but they're like, hey, I had this game idea. I wrote it down. I told it to a friend. And now dumbass, they've dumbass, stolen dumbass. it. Trade secrets. Remember what I said about trade secrets? This all goes back to the trade secrets thing. It, it, it's not a secret if you tell somebody. And, and if an you idea tell, it, isn't worth anything. No, you cannot protect an idea. You're absolutely well, you yeah. can with a patent, but you're not going to get a patent on, on anything in a game. Yeah, I work so with a lot of younger students actually, and a lot of times when we're in class or whatever, I say, Hey, you know, let's pick a game concept. But for, there's always a couple kids that are like, oh, I don't want to tell you my idea. It's so good. Oh and then I have to kind of explain like, hey, you know, the idea is not going to do anything unless you actually create a game around it. And so we no, can chat about that. But I got to tell you, I don't blame them for, for saying that because that's really the only way they can protect it is to not talk about it. It's not talk about it. Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. Even then, and even then, if they bring it to market. And we're well aware of this, that uh, there are companies out there who look for anything to pop in an indie game oh, yeah. uh, level, and they immediate, they're called fast followers. They used to mm -hmm. have names like, famous names like Zynga and other companies <laughs> yes. reportedly doing that. Where they'd they'd see a they'd see a game that was that that was succeeding, you know, reasonably, and then they would basically clone it. Yep. 
and not copy it exactly, but take the idea and expand on it. Was the guy with the tower game? Remember that? Yeah, Tiny Tower. Yeah, I mean, he got ripped out. There was nothing he could do about it except he took it to the press, and I think he got at least he got he made noise, which is, I guess, you get something for that. I don't know what. Yeah, actually, now there's a whole industry around it. It's it's called the hyper casual market. Yeah, which is basically everybody steals everybody else's games. Well. Tom is on the Discord, and if anyone needs an intro to Tom, he's not hard to find. You can Google him, or I can put you in touch. Either way, I... Uh, how about this? Gameattorney.com. Yes. Yeah, get any easier than that? Yeah. Yeah, I have a Discord channel. It's an open channel. Uh, I have a place where I hang out sometimes. I was doing, during the COVID, I was doing regular Wednesday night things that were kind of a hoot. We'd get a lot of crazy people in there. A lot of times we talk about other shit, so, you know... But also, if you if you get on the Discord and you reach out to me, I've got a place where people can ask questions, learn more about me and what I do and what I don't do, which is as important at this point. <laughs> but uh, Jay, it's good to see you, man. It's you been too, too man. long. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Tom. I, I, this I is know. fun. I, I hide. All right. No, so, hey, I do too. I'm a friggin' Herbert. And yet, yet Herbert. I'm a Herbert. <laughs> what the hell is Herbert? I tried to be, but now I'm traveling more than I've ever been. Yeah, All right, so we're going to close this one down, move questions over to Discord, and then we'll be back in about a minute resetting on how to recognize the best influencer for your game. And Dan's going to be running that one. So stick around. Stick with us, Tom. Thank you. As Thanks, always, Tom. love yeah, you, man. Is there a follow-up on Discord, or should I? can I go now? You can, you can go now. You're good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You're excused. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.